It's only fitting at the end of a month-long series on forgiveness that we're going to find ourselves here looking not only to an empty cross, but knowing there's an empty tomb and praising God for it. One thing we can all agree on when it comes to forgiveness is that forgiveness, well, it can be hard. Sometimes it can even be messy. What do I mean by that? Well, for starters, every year on the Day of Atonement, you read about this in Leviticus chapter 23, it's also known as Yom Kippur. It's one of the most solemn holy days of all the Israelite feasts and festivals. The high priest was to perform an elaborate ritual to atone for the sins of the people. The atonement ritual would begin with the high priest of Israel coming into the Holy of Holies. The unique thing is, this, this opportunity, this time, showed the solemnness of God. It showed that this day was originally, the whole thing was underscored by God telling Moses to warn Aaron, the first high priest, not to come into the most holy place just whenever he felt like it. All right? this, this couldn't be something that happened accidentally or frivolously. Only on this special day once a year was, was Aaron or a high priest to come in to the Holy of Holies. If he came at another time, Scripture says he would die. That seems harsh. You see, this was not a ceremony to be taken lightly. And the Israelites, the, the people, were to understand that atonement for sin was only to be done God's way. Before entering the tabernacle, the high priest had to bathe and put on a special garment. And then he had to sacrifice a bull for a sin offering for himself and the sin of his family. You see, the blood of the bull was then to be sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. Not like the carpet or the ground, but the ark where, where Aaron's rod was, where, where there was a jar of manna, where that was part of the throne room of God. The blood of a bull was to be sprinkled there. Forgiveness is messy. And then the high priest was to bring two goats, one to be sacrificed because of the uncleanness and the rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins may have been. And that blood was also sprinkled on the ark of the covenant. The other goat was used as a scapegoat. Yes, that's where the word comes from. He was used as, The high priest would place his hands on the goat's head. And then he would confess the sin of Israel and the rebellion of Israel and the wickedness of Israel and, and all the Israelites for the past year. And then he would send out the goat with an appointed man. There was always one man that would lead the goat out. I don't know if you drew a short straw for that or if that was a good person to be, but you had to lead the goat out into the wilderness and, and release it. And this goat carried on itself all the sins of the people, which were then forgiven for another year. I don't know if you're familiar with what happens to a goat all by itself in a wilderness, but it's not pretty. You see, the symbolic sig significance of this ritual is seen first in the washing and cleansing of the high priest, the man who and also the man who released the goat, and the man who would take the sacrificed animals outside the camp and burn the carcasses. The Israelite washing ceremonies were required often throughout the Old Testament, and they symbolized the need for mankind to be cleansed of sin because forgiveness is messy. But it wasn't until Jesus came to make the once and for all sacrifice that the need for cleansing ceremonies ended. We're told that the blood of bulls and goats could only atone for sins if the ritual was continually done year after year after year while Christ's sacrifice on the cross was sufficient for all. 
for the sins of all who would ever believe in him. And when his sacrifice was made, he declared, it is finished. But it was actually just the beginning. Because you see, he then sat down at the right hand of God and no further sacrifice was ever needed. Jesus was the final sacrifice. Will you pray with me? Father God, we come here this morning thankful that Jesus was the final sacrifice. Thankful that because of what he did on the cross, we, we have an, an opportunity and an openness to come before you. Not just once a year on a special day, not having a high priest go before us, but that Jesus was that high priest and he was the one. And because of that, we can come before you. And as we come before you this morning, as we become thankful for that sacrifice, I pray that the knowledge we gain today about your son and about this process will change the way we think, the way we act, the way that we see forgiveness the way that we understand the aftermath of forgiveness. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You see, Jesus was the final sacrifice and and the sufficiency and the completeness of that sacrifice, of the sacrifice of Christ, is also seen in these two goats that I just talked about because the blood of the first goat, like I said, it was sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant and it ritually appeased the wrath of God for another year. The second goat, as I said, removed the sins of the people out into the wilderness and they were forgotten. No longer, those sins no longer stuck to the people. In this act, what's happening is their sin is both appeased and atoned for. And both of these things are achieved eternally by Christ when he sacrificed himself on the cross. He appeased both God's wrath against sin, taking it on himself. Romans 5, 9 says, since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? The removal of the sin by the second goat was a living parable, if you will, to the promise that God would remove our transgressions as far as from the east is from the west. They sent that goat out, never to come back again. And God would remember them no more. You see, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was the most significant event in all history. But like the humans we are, sometimes we get caught up in things that we don't really need to focus on. There's an argument that's been going on for years about the precise location of where Jesus was crucified, where he was buried and resurrected. It's intrigued us for many centuries. I want you to understand something. The facts of this great event do not depend on locating the authentic site. It's only natural we would have an interest in knowing where our Savior rose and, or where our Savior died and rose again for us. But it doesn't matter. The fact is, He did it. We can't get hung up by people that have gone to the Holy Land. I went to the Holy Sepulchre. How do you know? There's like two or three of them. And they each go, the other one's not telling the truth. That part doesn't matter. The fact is, don't forget, He did it for us. But what does the Bible tell us about the events of that day or even the week leading up to Jesus dying on the cross? What does the Bible say about the location? The gospel writers call the place where Jesus Jesus was crucified Golgotha, an Aramaic word meaning the skull. Calvary, that's the term we typically use as the the Latin word or the Latin form of that word. But Scripture never reveals an actual precise location of Golgotha. It simply states, 
that Jesus' crucifixion took place outside of the city of Jerusalem, though near it. Hebrews 13, 11 through 14 says this, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. Talked about that. He sprinkles the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. You see, the Jewish law did not permit executing and burials inside the city. So we know that Jesus was crucified near a well-traveled road outside the city because Matthew 27, 30, uh, 39 says, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. Another thing we need to consider as we look into the aftermath of forgiveness is that, that Romans were professionals at what they did. They were professional torturers. They were professional executioners. They selected wide open places because they wanted their methods to be known. They didn't do this in in private. They didn't do it in secrecy. They did it in the wide open. They wanted people to see what was being endured. And so they picked these open places for their public executions. So the crucifixion of Jesus most likely took place on a hill because it was visible from a distance. As for the tomb where Jesus is buried, we're told only that it was in a garden near the place of the crucifixion. John 19.41 tells us that the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Matthew 27.33 tells us that they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Now we have this modern day idea. I blame Disney for this idea because they usually do things like this. We have this modern day idea that Golgotha was named Golgotha, the place of the skull, because the hill resembled a skull. People believe that. There's actually an argument that's been going on for years about that. But again, virtually all the early Christian commentary uh, writers held to the understanding that it was simply given that name because it was a place of execution where skulls and the bones of criminals lay scattered because typically if you were someone who was being, person who was being executed on a cross, you were someone that most people didn't care enough about to come back and get you when it was over. And so it wasn't because the hill resembled a cross, but because it was a place of persecution or execution and simply the bones scattered. I've got a couple more things I want to share with you so that we can really understand the aftermath of forgiveness and what this point is all about. I talked about the high priest a second ago and his duties. And now I want to talk about the curtain of the temple for a moment. You see, God had the, the temple curtain put up there for the safety of his people. Scripture tells us no one can enter into the Holy of Holies and live except for on the Day of Atonement, except for the high priest. Only the high priest can do this, and only once a year. You see, the curtain represents the separation of a holy God from sinful man. And because our sins have separated us from God, Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear Because of our sin, we are separated from God. And so the size and the thickness of this curtain, it ensured that nobody would accidentally fall into the Holy of Holies. You may think, well, how could that happen? There was a lot of activity that went on in the temple. But here's the thing. This curtain, this this veil, was 60 feet long. And it was 30 feet wide. It was almost over an inch thick. It was so massive and heavy, it took 300 priests to hang it. And to care for it. 
that's not something you're just going to go about your priestly duties just outside the Holy of Holies and trip and fall through. That's not a shower curtain. That's not a window blind. This is a real deal. This is the separation between sinless God and sinful man. There's no way somebody could accidentally trip and stumble into the Holy of Holies because you had to purposely go in there. You had to be prepared to go before the Lord. And again, as I said earlier, it took a lot of preparation. It took time before Aaron or the high priest would just walk in. You never went in to the Holy of Holies unprepared. I want to look at the torture and the sacrifice of Jesus. You see, it's because of our sin that God said the blood of bulls and goats was no longer enough. And so Jesus' own body was given as a final atonement for our sins. His death on the cross satisfied the wrath of God. What was due to us, punishment for our sin, Jesus took and he paid a debt that he didn't owe for a debt that we could never pay. The flesh of Jesus' body was literally torn. We, we, we sell that short so often. There's a point to this. Isaiah wrote in chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Verse 14, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see and what they have not heard, they will understand. You see, the Romans, like I said, they were experts at, at, at torture. They were experts at scourging, if you will. They used a wooden rod that had several 18 to 24 inch long straps of leather with with pieces of bone and metal, glass wire, jagged fragments of rock, whatever. And when they would use this on somebody, it would cut deeply through their skin. It would cut into their flesh. It shredded the muscle. It was so effective that most of the tissue of the body was removed and often the spine itself was visible by the time they were finished. And why would I share something so gruesome with you? Because Jesus' flesh was literally torn to shreds. Torn away. Think about this. Matthew 27, 51 says, When Jesus has cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. You know, at the moment that he, he cried again, at the moment he had endured his flesh being ripped from his body, Scripture says, when he gave up his voice, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. Rocks split and tombs were broke open. The curtain was torn at the exact minute of Jesus' death because our separation from God by our sins had been paid for by Jesus on the cross. Notice the temple curtain was torn from the top down to the bottom. Make no mistake, no priest snuck in to try to tear the curtain. It didn't happen that way. It was torn by God Himself. Something that large could not be torn by human strength. And so God did it for us by the death of His Son. And now, this is the cool part. We can go behind the curtain. We have access to the Holy of Holies through Jesus Christ. Every day. Not one day a year. Not after we sacrifice an animal. Every day. 
we have access to the Holy of Holies through Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, it wasn't Jesus' torn flesh that ended our separation from God. It was His sinless life, His death, and His, His resurrection that did that. Hebrews 10, 17-20 says, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. Amen. Amen. I love that. You see, the aftermath of forgiveness. What a price God paid to redeem us from an eternal separation from himself that we brought on ourselves. How could anyone imagine such a priceless thing? God did not spare His own Son for us. And Jesus endured the pain and the messiness of forgiveness. Our aftermath of forgiveness should be that we live our lives echoing Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Knowing that, and knowing what we know about Christ's death, about His burial, about His resurrection, shouldn't we feel compelled to tell others what God has done for us? And maybe you're not quite convinced that the aftermath of forgiveness requires action on your part. So I want to look at the week that led up to Jesus' final moments. You see, much of, of what took place that week is lost on the last Passover week, if you will, because we really don't understand the customs and the traditions of the time. For example, Jesus came in to the city of Jerusalem five days before the lamb was killed in the temple as the Passover sacrifice for the sins of the people of Israel. Well, you may think, well, that's not a big deal. A lot of people came in early. A lot of people came in there to get a place to stay. They had to get ready to worship. They had to do... But listen, also, five days before the lamb was to be sacrificed, that was the same day that it was chosen by the priest. They would choose the lamb, and then they would care for it for five days, to, to be sure that it was without blemish, to be sure that it was spotless. And so our Messiah entered Jerusalem on what I call Lamb Selection Day as the Lamb of God. I don't think that was by accident. You see, the people of Jesus' day, they didn't even understand the significance of that fully. And we know this because when they greeted Him, they shouted, Hosanna! And they, they threw palm branches down. And they, they threw their cloaks down. You may think, well, well, yeah, they did. They were saying Hosanna, which means save us. And that's what they wanted. But the reality is, they weren't looking for a spiritual savior when they were saying save us. They were looking for a political savior. Palm branches were a symbol of freedom and defiance. They weren't a symbol of the things that Jesus was about. They, they were a symbol of the world. If you were, As a matter of fact, Simon Maccabeus actually entered Jerusalem with that exact same symbolism where they were throwing palm branches down. And Jesus' reaction when this happened, do you know what it was? Scripture says that he wept because he knew they didn't understand his purpose in coming as our Messiah. Another thing that we should know is that the day Jesus was crucified was the day of the Passover. It was the day of the Passover celebration. And the day that the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. You see, for the previous 1,200 years, the priest would blow the shofar. And if I had a shofar, you guys would be in trouble because I would be blowing it right now. I don't have no idea what it sounds like, but it would be loud. And they would blow the shofar at, at the three o'clock moment, the moment the lamb was sacrificed. 
all the people would pause to contemplate the sacrifice for sins on behalf of the people of Israel. They would blow the shofar and everybody would know right now the priest is sacrificing for your sins. The scapegoat has been let out. The sacrifice of the Lamb of God was fulfilled at the hour that the symbolic animal sacrifice usually took place. At the same time, the curtain of the temple, remember I told you about that? Tore from top to bottom. Can you imagine that? The priest is going about his duty. He's like, okay, here we go. We're going to sacrifice. And then they blow the shofar. And then Jesus says, it is finished. And then the curtain rips from top to bottom and it goes dark and the earth shakes. And the guy blowing the horn is looking around like, did I do that? (laughs) The sacrifice of the Lamb of God was fulfilled at the hour that the symbolic animal sacrifice took place. And that whole thing physically in the temple, physically on the cross, mentally with everybody who was there, represents the removal of the separation between God and man. Now, if that wasn't enough to convince you about the aftermath of forgiveness's action on your part, the next thing that would happen during this Passover week towards the end was the festival of unleavened bread. And it began Friday evening at sunset. You see, as part of the festival, the Jews would take some of the grain, the first fruits of their harvest, they would take it to the temple and offer it as a sacrifice. And in doing so, they were offering God all they had. They were giving Him their first part. They were giving Him their best. And then they trust. They were saying they're trusting Him to provide for the rest of the harvest, for the rest of the season. At that point, when people are taking their grain offering to the temple, Jesus was buried planted in the ground, as he said, right before his death. Paul refers to Jesus as the first fruits of those raised from the dead in 1 Corinthians. And now we see how Jesus represents the fulfillment of God's promise to provide the rest of the harvest. Because he's in heaven preparing a place for us. I don't think those things happen by accident. At this time, I want to pause so that we can continue our worship with a time of communion. Knowing what you know, think about these things. On April 22nd, 2015, Jimmy DeLoach lost his daughter, Abby, in a car accident that killed five Georgia Southern nursing students. During this time of of harrowing grief and heartbreak, Jimmy says this about losing a child. He says, I don't think anyone wants to lose their child. We would trade places with them, just like Jesus did for us. He took my place on the cross. Jimmy goes on to say that he doesn't understand why this happened. and, And he also goes on to describe how he drew comfort knowing God understands because he too lost a child. Because of unmeasurable love and an amazing amount of, of grace, God Jesus, God, Jesus, our Father, allowed his son to, to die for you and for me. Oftentimes we find ourselves unable to understand God's mercies. This morning I hope that you can begin I hope that you can, you can begin to understand how much our Heavenly Father loves us. 
And, and I hope that you can begin to grasp the love and the forgiveness our Heavenly Father through the sacrifice of His Son. First Peter 1.3 says this, Praise be to God and, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This morning, I believe the only way to respond to forgiveness is to partake in communion. Let us pray. Father God in heaven, this morning we come to you, God, so thankful. Thankful that that Jesus died on the cross and three days later he rose. God, this morning as we, we we partake in communion, may we always remember, may we never forget that incredible sacrifice. God, we thank you. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for for always picking us up off the ground when we fall short. God, uh, you're awesome. Thank you that we can honor you and celebrate with you this week. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
we've just shared in a worshipful time of communion and remembrance. I want you to continue to think about all the things that have taken place, all the things that I've shared with you so far this morning as we look at Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 41. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled the sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. And then now, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to him to take him down, they said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this was the Son of God. I always took that verse for granted. The centurion saying, surely this was the Son of God until I learned the things I just shared with you. It makes sense. He'd been in that, that era long enough to see these things happen as rituals and he saw it unfold in real life before his very eyes. Verse 40 says, Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Could you imagine being, whether it's one of those women or the centurion or someone who grew up knowing all of the things I just described to you. And then seeing Jesus' final life moments played out in a parallel sequence alongside of 1,200 years of tradition and culture. I want to take a moment and compare some of the actions of other people during this week and during this time frame. I want to start with Pilate. We all look to Pilate because he, he was to bring law and order to the region. But instead, he washed his hands of the issue. In doing so, he, he may think that he found forgiveness, or at least he showed that he wasn't responsible for what was going to happen to Jesus. He forgot that old saying, to know what is right and do nothing is still sin. You see, he, he did what we do. When we take those half-hearted opportunities of accountability... He justified himself. I, I wash my hands of this. And that's what we do. Every time we short sell our sin, it's no big deal. Everybody makes mistakes. It's okay, buddy. No, it's sin. It separates us from God. Pilate's action separated him from God. We just kind of wash it off rather than repent. See, that's what we're called to do. Repent. Turn away from. But sometimes we choose to be like Pilate. Uh, we, just, we just wash it off. It wasn't that big a deal. It wasn't that bad of a sin anyways. We wash it off rather than repent, rather than seek out forgiveness and restoration from Christ. You know of Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. Everybody knows Judas. <sighs> he condemned an innocent man. And when he realized that, I want you to understand, Judas is a good example of someone that realized what he had done and realized when he recognized his sin, he realized that he needed the act of forgiveness. He knew he needed to make things right. 
And he's a good example of that. But he's a poor example of where to go when you're seeking forgiveness. You may be thinking, wait a minute, he went to the, the religious leaders. He went to the church. Shouldn't we go there to seek forgiveness? No. You see, Judas went to the Pharisees, the religious leaders seeking forgiveness. What'd they do? They judged him. They put it on him. They condemned him. They did the same thing Pilate did. He went to the religious people and said, what I've done was wrong. And they said, his blood is on your hands, not ours. The same thing happens with us today. How many people have been embarrassed and labeled and judged by Christians when they confess something rather than lift it up and held in accountability and love and walked alongside someone as we seek to restore them? Unfortunately, when we make a confession of some sort, we get ostracized. We get set aside. We get told like Judas, that's on you. We can't have you around the rest of us. And Judas killed himself because he couldn't see that the aftermath of forgiveness is God's grace lived out in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Messiah, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He couldn't see that. And he couldn't see it because of the religious leaders of the day. Let me just tell you, I will pray with you about anything. But unless you have personally offended me, please don't come to me and ask me to forgive you for something. It's not my job. I don't have the power to do that. I'll help you seek restoration. I'll walk alongside you. But forgiveness comes from God and God alone. Scripture, or excuse me, remember Peter. Everybody remembers Peter. Oh, the traitor. Denied Jesus three times and then the rooster crows. But then Peter, he takes responsibility. When he sees the resurrected Messiah on the shore, he recognizes Jesus. And he also recognizes the need for forgiveness. The scripture tells, I love this about Peter, he jumps out of the boat and he swims to shore. He does whatever it takes to get from where he is to the feet of Jesus. And then he and Jesus have this moment where Peter is given the opportunity to make things right. They have this moment where, where Peter is, is, we call it, he, we say he's restored. He's reinstated, if you will. And he changes his life. A coward one day, a few days later, he not only acknowledges Jesus, uh, but he becomes bold. He becomes this voice for repentance, for baptism, for living a new life as a reflection of Jesus. No matter what the cost. Peter got it. He realized that the aftermath of forgiveness was God's grace. He realized that true repentance of our past leads to a true life of change in how you act in your future. Brothers and sisters, our Messiah came. He lived. He taught. He set the example for us in this world in in word and in deed. And just like the prophets foretold, He gave Himself up for us. In His death, burial, and resurrection, He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered Satan. The tomb couldn't hold Him. For Jesus, the aftermath of forgiveness is that He is in heaven preparing a place for us right now. For Pilate, the aftermath of forgiveness was denying that he had anything to do with Jesus Jesus from the very beginning. For Judas, the aftermath of forgiveness was trying to find it in the wrong places and with the wrong people. For Peter, the aftermath of forgiveness was experienced in grace when he was restored by Jesus. And that is exactly where we will find the aftermath of forgiveness today. But we have to be like Peter. 
We have to be prepared to do whatever it takes to get back to Jesus in order to experience His grace and His mercy and restoration of our lives. I don't know how you will respond to that this morning. Will you respond like Pilate? Will you just continue to wash your hands of the things you're doing? Will you respond like Judas? Will you seek restoration in the wrong places? Or will you respond like Peter and let nothing stand in the way of you coming to your Messiah? Whatever your response is, I want you to know that if if you need to begin your life fresh with baptism, the baptistry is ready. If you'd like to talk with an elder, if you'd like to pray with someone about what's going on in your life, our elders are here. We have a place where you can go and, and pray with them privately. But just remember, for us today, the aftermath of forgiveness is doing whatever it takes to get back to Christ. I don't care how far you have to swim, Peter. I don't care who you need to walk away from, Judas. I don't care what your own understanding of forgiveness is, Pilate. You will only find the aftermath of forgiveness among the aftermath of the cross. And praise God, that's where we find an empty tomb. Our Messiah is preparing a place for us in heaven. Whatever your response is this morning, will you stand and sing our response song and respond accordingly? It's been great to spend this morning with you on this Resurrection Sunday because He is risen indeed. It's been great to look into the aftermath of forgiveness to the action that requires on us, but now it's time to go. As you go this week, I want you to go like Peter, knowing that you have been forgiven and restored by the aftermath of forgiveness. And because of that knowledge, you can go and live your life boldly sharing what you know about Jesus Christ and what He has done for you. We do not need to fear rejection. We don't need to fear ridicule. We do not need to fear death. Our Messiah has already overcome all of those. We only need to go and be the best reflection of Him that we can be. Will you sing this last song with us?